Hi everyone, I'm Madden. And I'm Zoe. And this is the Unnamed O Podcast. In today's episode, I'm going to be telling you a story that's a little closer to home for me and Zoe. In 2013, a woman was seen in the Mark Twain cave and gift shop with two people. One week later, her body was found in the Mississippi River, and she has never been identified. This is the story of the Jane Doe who was found on the rocks. On September 15, 2013, a boater was on the Mississippi River south of Sawyer's Creek when he discovered a body near the Missouri shore, just south of Hannibal, Missouri. According to a Marion County Sheriff, Jimmy Shin, quote, she was actually hung up on the banks of the river along some rocks. The river apparently went down, and that's where the body was hung up on. That's where the fishermen had located her, end quote. Just for a side note, Marion County is the county where Hannibal is located. Zoe, you're from Missouri. I'm from central Illinois, but I know we've both been to Hannibal. I've got a map for you so you can explain where Hannibal is, and then I've also placed a marker where approximately her body was found, although I don't have the exact coordinates. Okay, so the first thing that I have to ask is, you said this was Sawyer's Creek? It says Sawyer's Creek Fun Park. What's going on here? Okay, I'm really glad you pointed that out, because I had some real difficulty finding Sawyer's Creek, because I was assuming probably like most people, that it was an actual creek that feeds into the Mississippi, but it's not. That's what I assumed. Nothing was pulling up on Google Maps when I was searching for this creek, and so I decided to just be a good detective and do some legwork, and I started zooming in to every single creek on Google Maps that fed into the Mississippi around Hannibal to find one that said Sawyer's Creek, but it does not exist. Anyway, so I was stumped, and I couldn't find it, I did a Google search, which I probably should have done first. <laughs> I was going to say that I would have sure a little bit more dedicated than I am. As it turns out, Sawyer's Creek is a fun park, not a creek. I'm not sure what sort of stuff was at the fun park back in 2013, but it closed in 2020 because of the pandemic. Apparently, it was just bought by new owners back in August of 2023, and it'll be reopening sometime next year. Anyways, can you finish describing the map for us? Yeah, so it looks like from the middle of town in Hannibal, it looks like Sawyer's Creek Fun Park is about a four-minute drive, which is about two miles away from the center of Hannibal, True Town, on the rocks of the Mississippi on the Missouri. Missouri side. So I assume just somewhere in that general area, very close to the actual town of Hannibal. And also very close to the Mark Twain cave, which you might remember from the very first details I gave you about this case back in the opening credits, that this Jane Doe had last been seen nearby, specifically at the Mark Twain caves and gift shop. So you can see that her body wasn't found very far from where she was last seen, which is probably part of the reason why they were able to connect her back to the Mark Twain Caves and gift shop. Okay, you're saying that she's connected to this woman who was in the Mark Twain Caves and gift shop. How exactly did they connect her to the gift shop? Like, is there video footage or something like that? And this was in 2013, right? Right. This was in 2013, which means that most places should have CCTV, or at least I would think. I know you would never guess, but I did do a deep dive into CCTV cameras. What? I know. Crazy. I've never been known to do deep dives on anything, but here we go. Us do deep dives? (laughs) What are we? Angela Kinsey and Jenna Fisher? (laughs) Okay, let's start with a quick definition of CCTV. CCTV stands for Closed Circuit Television. 
CCTV is just video surveillance. That's all it is. So any video camera you see inside a store or on top of a building, that's CCTV. Interesting. I didn't know that. According to BBC, CCTV first became commonplace in the 1980s. That was when video technology became cheap enough for the average business owner to install it in their business. By the 1990s, there were even more CCTV cameras as video technology improved, which then resulted in better footage with better video quality and a lot more cameras. That makes sense. Privately owned CCTV cameras have been used by law enforcement for a while, but the introduction of police-operated CCTV was introduced after 9-11. Then, after the Boston Marathon bombing on April 15, 2013, Video footage caught on CCTV led to the direct identification and capture of the bombers. So we know that there were a lot of cameras around in 2013, especially after that event. So what do you mean that they were law enforcement operated? So instead of being cameras that were owned by businesses to surveil their stores, they were being owned and operated by the police. So then when police needed that footage, they didn't have to request it from the business owners. They had it on hand. So the CCTVs in businesses were police-owned? No. So the ones in businesses... Were still privately owned. Are still privately owned. Okay. But cameras in the street and stuff like that were police-owned so that they could just have access to all the footage without having to request it and it possibly getting taped over by private businesses, etc., etc. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. I'm, I'm with you now. Yeah, and like I said, most of the police-operated cameras came into effect after 9-11 because they wanted to have more surveillance for potential terrorist attacks and stuff like that. And then after the Boston Marathon bombing, when they saw that it worked, the, it worked the cameras led to the identification of the bombers. I mean, we've just gotten more cameras since then. But the Boston Marathon bombing was the same year as this doe was found. So we know that there were a lot of cameras at that time. This is in Hannibal, Missouri, though, not Boston. That's very true. That's very true. Hannibal is a much different city than Boston. It's not going to have as much surveillance, but it was still pretty common. But a private, yeah, and a private business should still have cameras in their store, you would think. Right, right, right. Since the Boston Marathon bombing, there have been ongoing debates about having more government slash law enforcement operated cameras versus restricting how many cameras they can have so that you're not constantly under surveillance. I guess having government-operated cameras is a lot more common in the United Kingdom, at least according to BBC, but whatever side of that debate you happen to fall on, CCTV cameras are very important in aiding criminal investigations, especially missing persons, homicides, and unidentified does. Yeah. However, when police in this case went back to the gift shop to check the footage for any signs of the woman, they weren't able to locate her on the film at all, which is kind of odd. Yeah, because they're connecting her to a woman that was in the gift shop, but she wasn't on the footage? I guess not, and we know that there is footage because they checked it. She just wasn't on the footage. So how do they know? She was actually put there by two witnesses. Okay. So a couple witnesses came forward and said they saw the woman in the cave and gift shop, and then when police went back to check the footage, they didn't see her, but it seems like they still believe the witnesses. According to Shin, who was the sheriff I mentioned earlier, he said, quote, We pulled surveillance tapes from there, which were to no prevail for us, end quote. So clearly they didn't even get anything off of these tapes, but everywhere says that she was in the cave and gift shop, so I guess they're just putting a lot of weight in the witness statements. Yeah. KHQA, a local news station, 
spoke to the two witnesses in 2015, although they did not want to be identified or to go on camera. But they swear that they saw the victim alive at the Mark Twain cave the Sunday before her body appeared in the river. In the beginning, didn't you also say she was seen with two other people? Yes, I did. According to the women who saw the Jane Doe inside the cave and gift shop, the Jane Doe was accompanied by two other people. But as far as I know, they also weren't able to be found on surveillance footage. Okay, this is getting really strange now. I know, it's a bit of a bizarre case. Let me tell you about the people she was seen with because I don't think they'd be that hard to pick out of a crowd. Okay. So you would think on footage you'd be able to see them. One of the people who Jane Doe was seen with was a man who was described by the witnesses as very, very tall, like six foot six. That guy would stick out like a sore thumb. Especially in a little tiny gift shop. I've been to that gift shop. It is not that big. And if there's footage, you're gonna see a six foot six dude in there. It'd be very hard to miss a six foot six guy. He had blonde hair and tan skin, and he was wearing an orange Iowa rodeo cutoff t-shirt with shorts and what was described as work boots. That's a very weird combination. The other person seen with the Jane Doe was a woman who witnesses said was short, around five foot, and pretty young, probably between 18 and 22 years old. She had short blonde hair with quote-unquote streaks in it, which I interpret as maybe chunky highlights. I don't know. What do you interpret that as? That's what I was thinking. Maybe streaks of color. Like, in 2013, I remember the hair chalk being a big thing. Mm. So maybe it was that. Yeah, like streaks do you remember of color. the hair feathers? They oh, were big, yeah. too. So. There was a lot of streaks going on in the hair <laughs> but, in the 2010s. But chunky highlights were also in true. She was also wearing gray shorts with yellow trim, and she was also wearing a yellow shirt. The man and the woman have never been located or identified. So do police think these two people have anything to do with Jane Doe dying? Could they have also been potential victims? Or was her death even a homicide? Police do consider the man and the woman as persons of interest, although they've never been declared as suspects. As for the Jane Doe, yes, her manner of death was officially classified as a homicide. Her cause of death was ruled as asphyxia due to smothering. So she would have died prior to being put into the river, right? I think she would have had to have been, yeah. Yeah, okay. So how do they think she got in the river? Do they think these two people put her there? Investigators really weren't that sure how she got in the river. According to Sheriff Shin, quote, One of the challenges for the investigators was, of course, trying to figure out whether the body was dumped there, whether it floated there, exactly where it came from, end quote. According to KHQA News, the investigators involved with this case actually managed to get a life-size dummy, and they dropped it off of the Mark Twain Memorial Bridge, which was upriver of where the Jane Doe was found. The point of throwing the dummy off of the bridge was just to see where in the river the dummy would end up if it floated downstream. So they're just trying to see if this is what happened to Jane Doe. Yeah, they were trying to see if, like, could she have been thrown off the bridge and ended up where she was found? That's actually pretty smart. Yeah. Watching the dummy move downriver showed investigators the currents and the water flow of the river. However, the dummy didn't float to the area where the Jane Doe had been recovered. So however she did get into the river, it seems like she was not dumped off of the Mark Twain Memorial Bridge. It's probably really good that they ruled that out, though, because that seems like what could have been a really likely scenario, so it's probably really good they did that. 
I think it is too. Even though she was found in the Mississippi River, police were able to recover the clothing and the personal items that she was wearing at the time of her death. That's really crazy because if she was thrown in the river somewhere and then just washed onto the rocks, that's pretty crazy. Yeah. The Jane Doe was found with a size extra large pink, purple, navy, and yellow striped blouse, size 13 to 14 Aria brand jeans, and a sterling silver ring with white inset stones. So this probably wasn't a robbery if the jewelry was left. You would think, I guess. I didn't think about that, but yeah. Zoe, here are the pictures of the personal items found at the scene. I keep mentioning this, but this is so early 2010s clothing. It's got bat wing sleeves, and it looks like it might be a little high-low with the front and back, which was definitely very trendy. This kind of pattern was very trendy for the 2000s, early 2010s, somewhere in that range. It reminds me of my childhood. I think the jeans are even more 2010. Yeah, I mean, I can't see a full picture of the jeans. It just looks like a pocket. Yeah, that's the back pocket of the jeans, from what I can tell. Yeah, but it's got those sequins on it. Yeah, it is heavily sequenced. I had jeans pockets that looked like that. It also has the very heavy contrasting color stitch. Yeah, it fits the time. And then this ring is really pretty. It looks like there's a couple of the stones. They look like diamonds. I don't know if they are, but it looks like the halo around the center stone. It looks like a couple of them are missing. It's a square set. It's got like a bigger jewel in the middle and then it's got like a halo around it with littler stones. And then the band looks like, at least for what you would see as the front view, has stones on it too. The side view is very intricate and very, very, very pretty. It's very, I don't know, it's just very delicate looking. This is a gorgeous ring. It's beautiful. And it looks like an engagement ring. Yeah. The side of the ring has engravings, carvings mm-hmm. on it. It's beautiful. It's, it's really, really pretty. Now, one thing that really strikes people as peculiar about this case is the pair of jeans found with the Jane Doe. Why? Well, let me give you a physical description of Jane Doe first, and then it might make more sense. Okay. Our Jane Doe was estimated to be 39 to 40 years old. Whoa, that's like super narrow. It's very narrow. I don't know how they got to that estimation. I don't, how do you have a two year range on a body that was in a river for a week? I'm not sure weird. She was decomposing. I don't think you're going to be able to really tell within a year. Yeah, no, that, I don't think we've had an age range that was that narrow before. That's crazy. It's kind of insane. For an adult, especially. Our Jane Doe was also estimated to be Hispanic or Latina, and she was likely between five foot one and five foot four and 120 to 145 pounds. She had brown shoulder length hair and brown eyes. She had no distinguishing features, but she did have a small scar above her left knee. Okay, so you mentioned jeans. You were going to tell me what she looked like, then talk about the jeans. Yes. What do you have for me? Well, to go back to earlier, here is why people are getting caught up on her jeans. If you remember, I said that she was found wearing size 13, 14 Aria brand jeans. Right. The sizing immediately struck me as odd, and it did for many other people online too. Most women's jeans, at least in the United States, are sized as even numbers, like size 4, 6, 8, and so on. This led many people to speculate that perhaps Jane Doe was wearing Junior's jeans. That's what I thought when you had said the size 13 to 14. They're typically sized differently, and 
they're a little bit more like what the sizing is here. For reference, generally juniors jeans are found with odd numbers, so you'll typically see sizes more like 5, 7, 9, and 11. I do remember, I think, having a couple pairs of jeans or skirts or something that was like size 13 or 14 like size 13 slash 14. I don't think that's totally uncommon. I'm not sure. I really don't know what to make of her jeans. It's very possible that the Jane Doe could have been wearing Junior's jeans, especially if she was on the more petite side. Definitely. Be because she could have been as small as 5'1 and 120 pounds. Somebody that small wouldn't be wearing like size 14 women's jeans. Mm -mm. I did try to search for this brand of jeans and it pulled up a couple websites like JCPenney, but they don't actually carry that brand of jeans, so I don't know why it pulled up. <laughs> Weird. There is a whole discussion on online communities about the jeans, and I know that out there there's a list of retailers that sold these jeans, but it was pretty basic stores and nothing that would have been, like, special or anything like that. Like I said, I'm really not sure if this is even an important detail, but I just wanted to bring it up because... In online forums, it has been picked over quite a bit, and you'll probably see something about it if you decide to do any research of your own into this case. And if anyone happens to know this particular brand of jeans really well, or you know how they size it, reach out and let us know because I would love to know. Now, another thing that people online really latched onto was the possibility, or even likelihood, depending on who you ask, that this Jane Doe was not a local. That kind of makes sense, maybe. She was seen in a gift shop. Right. Police seem to support this theory, and a lot of people speculate that if Jane Doe had been from the Hannibal area, she would have already been identified. Right. Additionally, the Mark Twain Caves is a bit more of a touristy destination. People that live in the area likely aren't visiting very frequently. Right. And if they are from the area and they visit frequently... The person working the gift shop probably would have known and recognized these people. Right. I said this earlier, but I've personally been to the Mark Twain Caves, and this is absolutely no hate. It's a wonderful spot, but it's kind of one of those things where if you've seen it once, you've seen it, and there's not much of a reason to go back. Right. Like, once you've seen it, you've seen it. You, you're not, It's not a repeat tourist thing. Yeah, it's not going to change every time you go. No, but obviously that's just my opinion from my personal experiences. So if you go to the Mark Twain Caves every week, more power to you. Another reason that people think Jane Doe might not have been from the area is the fact that she was seen with the man who had on the Iowa rodeo shirt. So I think people just assume that maybe they came from out of state, possibly Iowa, possibly somewhere else. This does feel slightly flimsy to me, and I don't think we should put all our eggs into this basket, but that is the prevailing theory at the moment. Yeah, and Iowa's actually pretty close to Hannibal because that's the northern border of Missouri, and Hannibal's pretty far up in that northeast corner. So I could see her being from Iowa, especially with that connection to that t-shirt that other person was wearing who was seen with her. Right. So that basically leads us straight into potential matches. Are there any potential matches? Yes, there are. Actually, I saw a lot of potential matches thrown out there for this Jane Doe. Specifically, I saw a lot of names thrown out on web sleuths, but let's start with the exclusions. Our Jane Doe has been compared to and successfully excluded from being eight missing women. That's quite a few. It is. The missing women were Leanne Redden from Massachusetts, Larissa Macrieo from Florida, Tracy Workala from Washington, 
Heidi Aguilar from Massachusetts, Layla Namiranian from Virginia, Anne Newark from Texas, Rebecca White from Utah, and Brittany Stallman, who is actually from Canada. Wow, so they've got a bunch of people from a bunch of different places, pretty much all across North America. Yeah. Investigators are not focusing on any one particular place or region, and you can tell they're really looking at places from all over the place. Now, moving on from the exclusions, let's get into possible matches. One potential match put out there a lot was a woman named Deanna Marie Schwark. Buckle up, because this case is going to get a little strange. Okay, I'm ready. Deanna Schwark has been missing since June 1st, 2013. This was about three months before the body of the Jane Doe was discovered. Deanna was from Round Lake Beach, Illinois. She had been staying with some friends, but apparently there was some kind of argument or dispute, and Deanna's friends asked her to leave. So she did. Unfortunately, no one has seen her or heard from her since that day. Sadly, this is one of those cases on the Charlie Project that says few details are available in her case. But we do have her physical characteristics and pictures that we can compare to Jane Doe. Deanna was a white, 37-year-old woman who was between 5'1 and 5'5 and 120 to 150 pounds. She had brown hair and brown eyes and her ears were pierced. We know that Jane Doe was about 39 to 40, 5'1 to 5'4, and 120 to 145 pounds with brown hair and brown eyes. Do we know if Jane Doe had her ears pierced? That I don't know. Okay. I wish I knew, but I don't know with decomposition how quickly the ears start to lose their form. Yeah, I guess that's a fair point. I don't know. Because an ear piercing is a pretty small hole. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. But at least on a physical level from everything else, they do seem to resemble each other quite a bit. Zoe, I've got a few pictures of Deanna here for you, and I've also given you a composite sketch of what Jane Doe might have looked like. Go ahead and describe both, and then you can compare them to each other if you want. As a really quick note, there are quite a few photos of Deanna online, but most of them are from a bit of a side angle, so I just chose the photo that was facing the front with the most neutral expression. Okay, I'm going to start by describing Jane Doe first. She has really short, curly hair. Her eyebrows don't match. I don't know why that is, but... So she seems to have almond turned down eyes a little bit. It looks like she has really deep laugh lines. It looks like she has a dimple in her chin. Very high and prominent cheekbones, I feel like. Like, they're very round. Yeah, she has, like, apple cheeks. Yeah. I don't know if that's the right way to say it, but, like, the apple of her cheeks is very full. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. Especially compared to the rest of her cheek. Her nose doesn't really strike me as unique or anything it's kind of just a button nose kind of just it's just pretty typical I feel like I don't know I don't feel like this could be anybody but I don't feel like this looks like anybody in particular either no I think she's pretty distinct looking like yeah it doesn't look like five different people that I know right but I also don't know anybody who looks like her but I, I don't recognize her by any means yeah if you knew her you could recognize her though yeah So now I have the picture of Deanna. My first overall impression is I don't think Deanna looks like the sketch a lot. Her face is more round. It's a weird angle, I think, so it's hard to tell what exactly her face shape looked like. She does have that fuller upper part of her cheek, like we talked about with Jane Doe. The eyes don't look very similar. It's hard to tell because of that weird angle. The eyes just don't match for me. Deanna's are heavier. The nose doesn't match. 
the mouth doesn't really match for me. It's just, I don't know. I understand why people think that these two could be the same, but I just don't see it. I have to assume that people are making this connection based off the timeline since she disappeared three months earlier, the general geographic location since she was from a bordering state, and just the overall physical characteristics, even if she doesn't look like the sketch. Yeah. I don't know. You do also have the consideration that Jane Doe was ruled to be Hispanic or Latina, whereas Deanna was Caucasian. That's something that I wondered about. But we do know that ancestry can be complicated to estimate, to say the least. That is also very, very true. Now, I know we've said that a million times, but I don't think we've ever explained how ancestry estimations work or why they can be so difficult. So I'm going to take you through it with me now. Even though what I'm about to tell you isn't exclusively used for ancestry estimations, we're going to talk about something called Fordisk. Fordisk is a software program used by forensic anthropologists to estimate ancestry, sex, and stature. Zoe and I have only used Fordisk to estimate ancestry thus far, though. The way Fordisk works is by using linear discriminant analysis that pulls from a database of standardized anthropometric measurements. In layman's terms, Fordisk has access to a database that contains a ton of skeletal measurements and skeletal data of modern humans. When a forensic anthropologist receives skeletal remains, they can take certain measurements that are then entered into the Fordisk program. Then Fordisk runs all of those measurements against the quote-unquote standard measurements that they've collected from their database to figure out if there are any trends that match information they already have. For estimating ancestry, this process involves taking a lot of measurements of different parts of the skull. Then, when we put those measurements into Fordisk, it searches its database for similar or matching measurements. When it finds similar measurements of people in the database that we already know the ancestry of, it estimates that because of the similarities, our Jane or John Doe could be the same ancestry as the people in that group. However, obviously this can pose some issues as well. Fordisk analyzes ancestry by clumping the unknown person with the closest group of known persons, which means that if the Doe's ancestral group is not represented in the Fordisk database, they will automatically be clumped with the next closest group, which could be completely wrong. Right. It gets very tricky very quickly. Additionally, Fordisk has difficulties estimating the ancestry of those with mixed ancestry because when there is overlap of features, it doesn't know how to classify it and it'll just put it with one closest group and not accurately represent the mixed ancestry present. One other problem with Fordisk is that not every ancestry is equally represented, which means that there is a lack of data for a lot of ancestral groups. This is why even though our Jane Doe was classified as Hispanic or Latina, there is always the possibility that she has mixed ancestry or isn't that ancestry at all. Right. It's a very tricky slope. It's a very tricky science. And we're using averages. And averages can only tell us so much. Yeah. Because everyone literally is different. And you can try to group averages into different ancestral groups, but there's so much overlap. It's really hard. It also just gets really confusing when there's mixed ancestry because Fortis just kind of doesn't know what to do with that. Yeah, because Fortis isn't an intelligent, sentient being. It's a program designed to create clusters, and it doesn't know how to represent something that has multiple different contributions. Now, I just gave you a lot of criticisms of Fordisk, but it really can be a useful tool and a useful program. But as forensic anthropologists, like everything else we estimate about these does, 
We can never be 100% sure until they're identified or it's confirmed with DNA testing. Anyway, to get back to Deanna, I told you earlier that her case was a little bizarre, and here's why. I found Deanna's profile on the Charlie Project, and there's a Facebook page dedicated to her with posts as recent as May 18th of this year, but she doesn't have a profile on NamUs. This just goes to show that not every missing person is in these databases, and that makes this very tricky, because the same is for Jane and John Doe's too. I thought this was super strange, because she hasn't been found, at least that I know of. That post that I mentioned on the Facebook group from May 18th of this year was saying, like, we miss you, we're looking for you, stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I don't think she's been found. Yeah. So there is no real reason that if she had a NamUs case, it would have been closed. Yeah. So I have to wonder if no NamUs case was created for her at all, which is so weird because she's documented as missing on both the Charlie Project and within her family. Yeah. And yet no NamUs. That's really weird. And that's not even the first instance of this we'll see in this episode, which is super strange. At first, I was worried because I thought maybe I was misspelling her name or something like that, but I double and triple checked it and I had it right. And then I thought maybe it was because some sources have her listed as Deanna Marie Schwark, while some have her listed with a hyphenated last name, Deanna Marie Pryle Schwark. But I tried both combinations on NamUs, as well as just Deanna and Deanna Marie, and her profile does not exist on NamUs. This is strange, though, because the Charlie Project has NamUs listed as one of their sources. Now that's really weird. Right? Which then makes me think that her case was on NamUs and was taken down. But she hasn't been found, so why was it taken down? I don't know. This is weird. I don't understand. It's super, super weird. and I, I don't get it. No, I don't either. I don't have any idea what's going on here, but it's bizarre and it's confusing. And just to add on top of this... According to the Charlie Project, Deanna's case is actively being investigated by law enforcement in Michigan. What? I don't know why. Is she from Michigan? No, she's from Illinois. I have no further details about that fact. It was just kind of thrown out there and not elaborated on anymore. I'm so confused. I don't know what's happening in this case, but there's no NamUs profile, so I can't get an official report. I'm so confused. Now, Zoe, I told you that she was from Illinois, right? Yes. And I wondered how close that was to Michigan, because surely it would have to be somewhat close for Michigan police to be investigating. Yeah. Right? Right, because Illinois and Michigan, they don't border each other, but they're really, really close. Here's a map. Let us know what you're looking at. And that red dot is where she was last seen. Okay, that red dot is north of Chicago. It's really close to the border of Illinois and Wisconsin, and it's kind of close to Lake Michigan, but it's nowhere near Michigan. (laughs) It's on the other side of Lake Michigan. Right, which means you would have to drive down through Chicago, around through Indiana, and swing up back into Michigan. Yeah. I don't understand why Michigan police are looking into this. I don't know. And I don't know where in Michigan police are looking into. It just said Michigan. I wanted to see how quickly you could get to Michigan. Just the very quickest route to the closest city. Yeah. Which is probably not even where they're investigating. Just how long would it take me to get across the Michigan border? How long is it? Just a bit over two hours. So it's not that far, but that's just to get over the border. We have no idea where in Michigan was being investigated or why is there any reason that they suspected to have been traveling to michigan there's no information i have no idea this is frustrating and confusing and i don't understand police obviously suspect something here that we are not privy to i don't know what it is 
but I don't think we'll get to the bottom of this anytime soon. Yeah. At least not on this episode. But I think the important thing to take away here is that investigators think she left Illinois and maybe in surrounding states. Okay. That's what I took away from it. Yeah. Yeah. Which could theoretically mean that she ended up in Missouri. Definitely. But of course, that's just a hunch that people online have, and until we know more about the circumstances of her disappearance, which we have none of, we can't know if it's even a reasonable thing to guess or not. Yeah. The physical characteristics do seem to line up, as well as the time of disappearance, roughly, but I just don't know. I need more information before I could even begin to guess. I'm in the same boat as you. I don't even- (laughs) I have so many questions, I don't even know what to think right now. I- I don't know. It's almost like she's a possibility, because we can't rule her out as being a possibility, because we don't have anything to rule her out with. Yeah. Is there any DNA or- evidence like that in her case? In Deanna's case? Yes. Not that I know of. I'm sure investigators could get a familial DNA sample if they wanted to because her family is still looking for her. Yeah. But I don't think they have any physical evidence of any kind from what I've seen online. Okay. I have so many questions and no answers and I hate it. I have no answers for you. I'm sorry. The reason that I started by telling you about her first was because she was definitely one of the names I saw the most online. But let's go ahead and move on to some other matches that I've seen. The next potential match is a woman named Melissa Ortiz Rodriguez. Melissa was 30 years old when she left her home in Collingdale, Pennsylvania to see a friend. Melissa has never been seen or heard from again. Okay, Pennsylvania's pretty far from Missouri. Do we think she was traveling to see a friend somewhere where Missouri was on that path? I don't think so. I think she was traveling to see a friend locally. Okay. From what I gathered, again, it is a trend with all of the cases I'm going to present to you. There is little to no information about any of them. Amazing. That's frustrating. And as for the Pennsylvania thing, I mean, they were looking at leads all over the place. So I don't think- That's true. I don't think it's unreasonable. Yeah, that's right. She disappeared on April 19th, 2013. So again, the timeline's pretty close. Yeah. Her estranged husband, Jose Rodriguez, was the one who reported her missing. And he reported her missing about five days after she vanished. Was it a good relationship between the two? Because you said the word estranged. If they're estranged, I'm going to guess no. That's what I was kind of wondering. Because you can be divorced or separated without being estranged. Yeah. But estranged makes me think that something went bad there. Yeah. Investigators did get a warrant to search Jose's stuff, but he's never been named a suspect in Melissa's case and neither has anyone else. At the time she disappeared, Melissa's two daughters were just 7 and 11 years old. Melissa was 5'2 to 5'4, 135 to 150 pounds, and she has mixed Caucasian and Hispanic ancestry. According to Jose, she was last seen wearing a yellow floral dress and glasses. Here's a picture of Melissa. I could definitely see her being... Jane Doe, based on that reconstruction. Her hair is different, like the hairline is a little different, but that's just because of the style of Jane Doe's hair. But to talk about Melissa, she has a larger nose. Um, She's got that very full cheek that we were talking about earlier. Her eyes, they're pretty level and they're kind of round and big. I mean, they're not like huge eyes, but they're kind of, I don't know, they're striking. She has a darker complexion, she has dark hair, but I could see some similarities between her and Jane Doe potentially. I don't know. It's not a perfect match, but we've seen identifications where the reconstructions look nothing like what the person actually looked like. That is very true. And that is also where my information about her case ends. That's all I have for you about her. Seriously? That's it. That's all that's out there. 
That's frustrating. I know. These cases don't have much information. That's not good or okay. No, it's not at all. These cases deserve more publicity than they've gotten. Yeah. I have to wonder what could have happened if their cases got more publicity. Right. I do have one more potential match for you, and her name is Juana Estrada Hernandez. She was last seen in Carrizo Springs, Texas on May 11th, 2013. She is a Hispanic woman who was 5'6 and 140 pounds. At the time of her disappearance, she was 36 years old and she had black hair and brown eyes. According to the Charlie Project, Juana may have used the first name Johanna and that's it. That is all I know. That is all the information out there about her case. And again, the Charlie Project says few details are available, which we've seen before in this episode and in previous episodes. That is so frustrating. Like, I had two sentences to tell you about her. I should have so much more information about a missing person than that, but I don't. That's so frustrating. I do have a picture of her if you want to take a look. So, Juana has, like I've talked about a lot, she's got those very full upper cheeks. Her mouth is very thin. She kind of has those almond downturned eyes like I talked about earlier. That's what I was gonna say. I think that her eyes match the most. Yeah, I see some similarities. Like, I think reasonably that this could be Jane Doe. I mean, again, it's hard because it's just one sketch that I've seen of Jane Doe. And and we have no other information about Juana's circumstances of disappearance. Yep. I think it's a possibility, but then again, I think all of these cases could be possibilities because there's no information. Yep. The next story I have for you is not a match, but a story I wanted to tell you nonetheless. Because I saw her name in online forums about this case, and after doing some research, it became pretty clear that she was not our Jane Doe. But I couldn't leave her out of this story. Okay, I'm intrigued. Her name is Naomi Knight. Again, I'm going to tell you right off the bat that this is very likely not our Jane Doe. The reason I'm bringing up her case is because this is another case where she is not listed on NamUs, even though it's been documented that she's missing. And not only that, but her case has received almost zero attention, like less so than the three cases we just talked about, which basically also received no attention. For Naomi's story, I found exactly one local newspaper from 2013 detailing her case, and that is it. What? There are no Reddits, there are no web sleuths, there's no Charlie Project, there's no Doe Network, there's no NamUs, there is one local news story, and she doesn't even have her picture published. That's horrible. It's just a very brief couple sentences about her physical characteristics, and her disappearance. And that is it. That's horrible. So basically, I just wanted to bring her up and tell you guys her story because she deserves more attention than that. And if I can give it to her on this podcast, I'm going to. Yeah. And if there is even a remote chance that she could be our Jane Doe, then we should tell her story. Right. At first, this all just seemed so wild to me that she would have no sources out there about her. I had to wonder if maybe she had already been found. But it kind of seems like she's still missing because there haven't been any updates. Yeah. And usually finding a missing person gets more publicity than the missing person when they originally disappear. Yeah. But the only source out there was about her disappearance, not her being recovered. So I'm, I'm not sure, but I think it's really likely that she's still missing. Okay. So just the fact that she has one paragraph out there, that's hopefully going to change soon. Yes. Naomi was 18 years old when she disappeared from the 6100 block of South Woodlawn, Chicago, Illinois, on June 10th, 2013. 
She was last seen wearing a pink and white striped top, blue jeans, light brown Timberland boots, and a ponytail. I think that the clothes she was wearing could be what makes some people think that she could be our Jane Doe, since she was wearing a similar striped shirt and jeans. But at the time of her disappearance, Naomi was only 18, and our Jane Doe was estimated to be between 39 and 40. Right, that is a pretty big age gap. We know that age estimations can be off, but that feels like a stretch to say that an 18-year-old would ever be mistaken for a 39 to 40-year-old woman. Yeah. Yeah. And that composite sketch, I don't see how that could ever be an 18-year-old. No. Now, again, I'm not telling you Naomi's story because I think she's Jane Doe. I'm telling you because someone needs to be telling her story. Naomi was 5'4", 136 pounds, with brown eyes and black hair. She was black and had a light brown complexion. So that's another thing that doesn't really match is she had black ancestry, whereas Jane Doe was likely Hispanic. Mm -hmm. So there's some crossover on four disc and stuff like that. It can be tricky to determine, but I think that the complexions were totally different based on the descriptions. Naomi was thought to frequent the areas of 46th Drexel and 52nd Dorchester in Chicago. She is also a special needs student and she has been diagnosed with bipolar disorder, which makes finding her even more imperative. Yes. Zoe, like I said, I I really wish I could show you a picture of her, but there aren't any out there. So that's it. That's her entire case. I don't have a picture of her. I don't know what she really looked like. And that's it. That's frustrating. Everything about that case is frustrating and I don't know very much. I don't even know what she looks like. It's so unfortunate. I don't understand how people get this little attention when they go missing. Especially she was a teenager. She was a special needs person. There should be so much more publicity out there looking for her. And the fact that she got one measly paragraph in a local newspaper, it's absurd. It is. It's frustrating. And I'm sorry to distract us away from our Jane Doe story, but I thought this one was important to tell. As I'm sure you have probably guessed by this point, based on the absolute lack of information I have this episode, I don't have any suspects for you. No one knows who the two people seen with the Jane Doe are, and I guess without the footage, we don't actually even know that they were there, but the problem is it's nearly impossible to narrow down suspects when you don't know the identity of the Doe. Exactly. In most investigations, police begin with the people closest to the victim and work their way out. But obviously you can't do that when you don't know who the victim is or where she was from. Yeah. But I didn't want to leave you with nothing here, so I thought I'd do another miniature deep dive for you. A shallow dive, if you will. This time, I wanted to research some statistics to see how often it's the people closest to you that commit the crime. According to an NPR article from 2017, written by Camilla Dominoski, data suggests that worldwide, a partner or spouse is the killer in 38% of homicides committed against women. In the US, intimate partners were responsible for 40% of the homicides of women and 7% of the homicides of men. So to bring it back to this case, Clearly, when women are murdered, it's pretty frequently at the hands of someone close to them. Almost half of the time, actually. Yeah, that's why it is so difficult to have a suspect of who murdered a doe, because you don't know who they are, and you don't know who their circle is. Exactly. Okay, so you've taken us through missing people that could potentially be her. What about testing? Do we have DNA or anything like that? I'm glad you asked about it, because... We don't want to leave you an episode where we don't talk about DNA. It's kind of our thing. According to the Doe Network, Jane Doe has both dentals and DNA available, although she doesn't have fingerprints on record. That's pretty good. Yeah, two out of three. Yeah. 
I mentioned earlier that we've had several exclusions on this Jane Doe, which I assume we're probably done with DNA, but possibly dentals. I know we say this in basically every episode, so we probably sound like broken records at this point, completely broken records. But I really think that the next steps in this case are isotope testing and genetic genealogy. Absolutely, I agree. We don't know where Jane Doe was from. Maybe she was from the Missouri area, maybe she wasn't. It's pretty likely that she was from somewhere else entirely. Which isotopes could help narrow down. Massively. Yes. Let's test the isotopes to get an idea of where she might have been from. We have to start by narrowing down the field that we're searching in because there are just too many missing people to go through each and every one and try to exclude them. This is especially true since we know that investigators are looking into cases from all over the United States and Canada. They have a huge pool to search through right now and isotope testing could really help narrow it down. Yeah. Do we know for sure that they still have her body or her remains? I don't have any information about where her remains are right now. Okay. I don't know if she's been buried. I don't know if she was cremated. I hope she wasn't cremated. And it's possible they've done isotope testing, but with how many exclusions from all over the place there are, I kind of doubt it. Yeah. Like, I have to think maybe they haven't. Well, isotope testing would hopefully narrow down the region that they would search in, and the exclusions are just all over, so I agree with you that it's probably very unlikely. The next step I think we should take is genetic genealogy testing. This doesn't work in every case, but if it hasn't been done, what are we waiting for? Genealogy testing has been so successful for identifying does, and until we get more information about who she is, or who she was with, or where she's from, I think it's a good idea to at least try it in this case too. I agree. At the time we're recording this episode, it has been just over 10 years since this doe was discovered. There might not be very much information out there about this case or the other cases we've talked about, but hopefully this will change if we keep pushing for their cases to open up. If you or anyone you know has information relating to the Hannibal Jane Doe or any of the missing people we've talked about today, please contact law enforcement, and their information will be on our website. Also, if you haven't already, go check out our Patreon. And a portion of the money we raise through our Patreon gets donated back to helping organizations solve these cold cases. And if you don't want to join our Patreon or you just can't swing it right now, please leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening. You don't need to write a review by any means, but just hitting that five-star button boosts us to so many more people. It lets us get these stories out there. It lets us fight for these does. And just doing that is a way that you can help us solve cold cases without having to donate any money or any of your time. And also, if you haven't already, be sure to share this podcast with your friends and family. The more people in your circle that know about this podcast is the more people that know about the stories that we're telling. We're here to just bring attention to these cases, and we need your help to do that. As always, thanks so much for joining us for another episode of the Unnamed Doe Podcast. We'll see you next Tuesday. This episode was researched and written by Madden Delaney. All editing and music was done by Zoe Reese. (laughs) 